Good, well we're going to um, have the Bible reading. The Bible reading is in, in three parts this evening. And uh, the first reading is from Exodus chapter 33. It's in page 93 um, of the Church Bible. And we'll be reading from verse 18. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Exodus 34, verses 5 to 8. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, and he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Exodus 34, verses 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. We have a pretty difficult task to do. We're working in a country that is 99.9% Muslim. And we have the desire to share with them the love of Jesus. How do we do it? How do we do it? And yet there's a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, if I can quickly find it, in Isaiah chapter 60. And it says this. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you, all assemble. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on on their arms. 
Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth of the seas will be brought to you. And it says, verse 6, herds of camels will cover your lands. Young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and declaring the praises of the Lord. And this is a prophecy about the future. And yet today, they are 99.9% Muslim. There's a huge gap In how many years? How many years do we have before Jesus comes back? How many years before God is going to do something? God is going to have to do something amazing. But what I want us to look at today in relation to what we've just been reading is motivation. What motivates you? What motivates you to get out of bed in the morning? What motivates you? What pushes your buttons? What gets you going? Think about that. And then I want to ask you something else. What motivates God? What motivates God to get out of bed in the morning, figuratively speaking? What motivates him? What is he passionate about? And my answer always was, well, God is passionate about reaching the lost. He's passionate about reaching lost souls. But actually... I don't believe that's his first passion. God is passionate about his glory. God is passionate about his glory. Now, you and I think about this and we think, hmm, God is passionate about himself. Well, we may think that's a bit strange because we are human, we are sinful. We look at things from our own perspective and we try and imagine God to be something like us. But he's not. You see, when somebody starts making something big of themselves, it's, it's ugly. It's not very nice. It doesn't really make, give you that good feeling in your heart because, because people are not very good. There's sin in our hearts. And what's in our heart when it comes out is not very nice to look at. But God is holy. He is pure. He is amazing. He is so lovely. He is so exciting, so attractive. David wrote about him. And he said, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. He is so amazing. He is so wonderful. You know, sometimes you, 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 you meet people and you, you can't get enough of being in their presence. Being with them does something to you. It feeds you. It, you just feel so good when you're with that person. And God is like that many, many, infinitely times more. Angels, throngs of angels surround him and just gaze at his glory because his glory is so amazing. And everything God does is for his glory. And we shall see this tonight. That's what I want us to see. And that is what God is passionate about. It says in Revelations chapter 4, verse 11, You are worthy, O Lord. 
And this is angels, thousands and thousands of angels surrounding the throne and singing this song and saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things for your pleasure or for your glory. And for your glory, they are and were created. God has created things. He's created the world. He's created each one of us that we may reflect his glory. That we may bring glory to him. So what is God really like? What is it like when we meet God? Well, we are, we're told in the scripture that Abraham met with God. We're told that Moses met with God. And that, uh, that David had experiences when he met with the Lord and different ones of the prophet, prophets. But we have this amazing account of what it was like for Moses to meet God face to face. And Moses met with the white heat of the holiness of God, and he was changed. And he had had this conversation with God. Moses was an amazing man. It was written to him, and you find the verse right at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy. And it says about Moses that there was no other man on the face of the earth that had this amazing relationship with God like Moses did. And it also says that Moses was a humble man. He was a meek man. And that doesn't meek, is it, we could go into that word, but he was a humble man. And Moses had this experience of the presence of God. And Moses says to the Lord, now, Lord, show me your glory. Lord, I want to see you. I've been talking to you and I can hear your voice, but I can't see anything. Lord, show me your glory. I want to see you, Lord. And God replies to him and says, you cannot see my face. That's one thing, Moses, you cannot see. You cannot see my face. And God says, the reason is that no man, no sinful man can look into the face of God and live. It's not that you would be punished for looking in the face of God. It's just that because you are sinful... Because sin is in your heart. If you were to look into the face of God, you would evaporate. There there just wouldn't be anything left of you. Because of the amazing holiness of God. God is so holy. He's so pure that the sinfulness in us would cause us to evaporate. And so for Moses' good, God says to him, There's a place near me where you may stand. And when my glory and Jesus, God refers to himself and refers to his nation, uh, his nature, his character, his his presence as his glory. And he says, (coughs) excuse me, when my glory passes by, I will put my hand over you to cover you until I've passed. God said this in order to protect Moses. It was for Moses own good. So that Moses wouldn't be completely annihilated by the holiness, the white heat of the presence of God. Then he said, I will remove my hands and you can see my back. You can see my back, but my face you must not see. And so 
we have this amazing account that we've just been uh, read of the time when God passed by Moses. And the amazing thing is that Moses was changed as a result. When Moses came down the mountain, he was different. How was he different? What was different about Moses when he came down the mountain? Do you think? Can you remember from the story? How was he different? Anybody? His face was glowing. He had come face to face with the holiness of God. And his face was just beaming. And people couldn't look at him because his face was so bright. And the effect was, it says that finally they came to Moses. They were too afraid when Moses came down. They all ran away. They must have run away because it says later on that they eventually came to Moses. Moses said, hey, where is everybody? You know, they were all hiding. And eventually they came and Moses was able to share what God had said to them. Moses was changed by the presence of God. He was changed because he'd been in the presence of God. You know, Daniel, it's, it's, there's one common factor which seems to unite all the close human encounters of the presence of God throughout the Bible. One is that there's a deep sense of personal sin. And the second one is that there's a, a manifestation of fatigue. When, when Daniel and Ezekiel, and even John on Patmos met the angels, Daniel's response by the river of Sheba was that he fell on the ground like dead. He came into the presence of holiness, and his reaction was that he fell on the floor like a dead man. And the angel had to help him up onto his feet, and then he could start to speak to him. And it was the same with Ezekiel, and it was the same also with John on on Patmos. You can read... You can read that. But for Isaiah, and also for Peter, when Peter was in the boat, Isaiah saw the Lord. He came into the temple one day, and he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his reaction was, I am sinful. Woe is me. I've seen the Lord. I'm looking at God. I'm going to evaporate. I'm going to die. Because he was aware of his sin. And so... Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, the one thing that Holy Spirit is going to do, it's going to convict you of sin. The work of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes to each one of us, is it makes us aware of our sin. Because the Holy Spirit is the presence of God in a form that we can receive, in a form that we can understand. And so we see how God starts to move in the lives of men and women. Sue and I had the, the opportunity about 20 or 30 years ago uh, to meet a man who was present in the, at the time of the revival in the Congo. And uh, this man said that they had been having this prayer meeting and this time of prayer. And as they prayed, the Spirit of God fell in this prayer meeting. And people were suddenly aware of sins that they had committed. Things that they had done wrong that represented a barrier between them and God. And they fell on the floor and they cried out to God and cried out that he would forgive them. 
There had been divisions in the congregation. There had been brothers who had problems with other brothers, people that uh, had disagreements. And they were convicted of their disagreements and they came and they begged forgiveness from one another. And the Spirit of God began to move. We have an amazing account of Jonathan Edwards where he describes the characteristics of revival in America. And he says an extraordinary sense of the awful majesty, greatness and holiness of God so as sometimes to overwhelm soul and body. A sense of the piercing, all-seeing eye of God. So, excuse me. Excuse me, I'm... running out of liquid so so as to the all-seeing eye of god so as to sometimes take away bodily strength an extraordinary view of the infinite terribleness of the wrath of god and this was a sense together with a sense of ineffable misery of sinners exposed to this wrath now that's that's old-fashioned language there because jonathan edwards he's writing this in 1735 But that was the experience when the Spirit of God began to fall as revival happened. I read another account of a time of revival in in America at a later time, and I don't have that quote with me. But what it said was that people became really convicted of sin as the Spirit of God fell in that place. And it said people who were out at sea on ships coming into port, suddenly became aware of their sin and began to cry out to God for forgiveness. And so we see that here is when the Spirit of God comes, when the Spirit of God falls, He exposes the sin in our lives and causes us to to, to cry out to Him for forgiveness. So how do we bring the glory of God to people? Jesus said in John 15, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. And fruit that Jesus is talking about there comes from relationship. It comes from a relationship with the living God. In John 14, 7, uh, 17, 4, uh, Jesus said, I've glorified you on earth. I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus is talking about how he was able to to glorify God through the work that he did. And at the end, Jesus, Jesus came into the world. His glory was veiled. It says in in, uh, John chapter 14, it says that it was Jesus who appeared to Isaiah in the temple. And Isaiah was in the temple saying, I have seen the Lord, woe is me. And yet if you look in John chapter 14, it says that that was Jesus. Isaiah saw Jesus. But he saw Jesus in his unveiled state. But Jesus came into the world, his glory veiled. And Jesus said right at the very end of his life, just as he comes to the cross, it's like, almost like his heart cry, praying to his father. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
Jesus was passionate about his glory. He had laid his glory aside as he stepped into the world, as he became a human being. And his heart's cry was that those who had come to see him, who had come to him, who had trusted in him, who had believed in him, would see his glory. It's seeing his glory that changes us. We need to hunger and thirst for the glory of God. The glory of God changes us. And we need to be reminded. We need to seek the glory of God. We need to cry out to him and ask him to reveal himself to us and to reveal his glory. I believe we should be seeking God for his glory. He wants to reveal his glory to to us. You cannot enter the presence of God as you are. You have to be changed. Otherwise, you'll evaporate. And that's why Jesus came into the world to die. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us clean, that we may be able to enter into the presence of God, that we may be able to one day stand in his presence without fear and without being, evapor- without being destroyed by his presence. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne in heaven, and him that sat on it, from whose face heaven and earth fled away. When God stands, when God appears in glory, heaven and earth cannot abide his presence. They flee away from his presence because he is so holy, he is so pure. The Lord has promised, as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's God's vision. That's God's passion. But sin robs God of his glory. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. And his comment on it was, behold, everything is good. Very good. He saw everything that his hands had made. And it was good. But sin robs God of his glory because it puts me on the throne of my life it puts you on the throne of your life it means that you call the shots you dethrone god and yet that throne in your heart that throne in your life was made for him alone And the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, I will not give my glory to another. God is not in the habit of sharing his glory. He wants to sit on the throne of your heart. And so God set about this elaborate rescue plan to come into the world and die, to live among us and to die and to rise again, that we might have faith in him, that we might know him, that our lives might be changed by him. In fact, it says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, he became sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What an amazing thought. 
that we might be pure, that we might be clean, that our sin might be dealt with, that we might be able to enter into his presence. When the mighty Son of God takes up residence in your heart, there's got to be a difference. There's got to be a change. When you ask the Lord Jesus into your life, was there a change? Did the Lord Jesus really come in and change your life? When I cried out to Jesus all those years ago, my life was changed. It went from black and white to panoramic technicolor. It went from monophonic to quadraphonic sounds. I heard sounds. I saw things I never saw or heard before. It's like my life became alive because I met with Jesus. And when Moses met with God, his life was changed. And people saw the difference. When he came down the mountain, they saw the difference. And you know, unless our lives are changed, when we walk out of this building, when we walk down the high street, when we interact with people in our work, and they don't see Jesus shining out of you, they're not going to know. They're not going to be able to give glory to God. So Jesus said, let your light so shine before men. Let that light that you receive, which is reflected light from the presence of God, let that light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the purpose. That's our, that's our vision. That's our goal. That's our aim. To live so totally for Jesus so that we, I, get off the throne of my life and I invite the Lord Jesus Christ to be center stage in my life so that he calls the shots. So that he leads me, so that he guides me, so that I'm sensitive to what he is saying. So that it is no longer I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the grace of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have to live in the fullness of his presence, in the fullness of his grace, in the fullness of his energy, in the fullness of his love. That's what D.L. Moody said. The only Bible most people are going to read is the Bible walking around in shoes. That's you and me. As we live out the presence of God. As people see Jesus in you. In the way you live. In the way you act. The way you react. Demonstrating the love of Jesus in how you live. And our attitude and our ambition should be like Jesus. And it's summed up in this. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, considering others better than yourself. Each of you should not look on his own things, but on the things of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in the very nature of God. Didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. But made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearances of man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even death on the cross. So obedient, so sensitive was he to his father's will, even though it meant the cross, even though it meant pain ahead. 
He knew that through the pain, he would bring glory to his father. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. It comes full circle. He did all that to bring glory to his Father. And that was his focus, to bring glory to his Father. So what is it that motivates you? Are you motivated to bring glory to God? Is that your life's purpose, to bring glory to God? Is that what motivates you to get out of bed in the morning? Is that what motivates you to live each day? To bring glory to God. Is that what motivates you when you spend time in, your, in the word of God every day? As you read his word, <clears throat> as you share his word with others, as you live out your life to bring glory to God, to make his heart happy. Jesus spoke to the church in Laodicea and he said, don't be lukewarm. If you're going to be lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'd rather you were either hot or cold. The Lord loves us to be passionate. He loves us to be passionate about him. To focus our eyes upon Jesus. To let him fill our lives and motivate our lives. And be the mainspring of our lives. But it's not a thing of works. It comes from the presence of God. So what I ask you today is seek the presence of the Lord. Seek the presence of God. Hunger and thirst for the presence of God. Just love him. Love him more. Ask him to give you that passion for himself, that passion for his word. Ask him to reignite in you this year. We're pretty near the beginning of the year. We can make another New Year's resolution. Ask him to reignite in you a passion for Jesus. And from that, your passion will be aligned to his passion. And the things that you do will bring glory and praise and happiness to his heart. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord.